0: Well, hey everybody! Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host as always, and welcome to the podcast. So, on today's episode, we are continuing on into our hazardous location. So, hopefully, you've listened to the first part where I kind of do a thirty-thousand-foot view of hazardous locations. Obviously, it's not all-encompassing, but it does give you a good idea of the the differences between Class One, Class Two class three spent a very little time in class three um but the differences in the two and obviously the understanding of the difference in division one versus division two uh and so as a summary really and and this goes throughout whether or not you're dealing with class one uh class two or class three is division one is environments where all of the conditions within that class are present at any given time okay it's normal course of business. Okay, so if you're in class one and it's vapors uh, and you're worried about that, then it's a normal part of flammable vapors or ignitable vapors and, and things like that. All of that is a normal course of business. That would be division one. If it's contained in vats or, or containers or In enclosed systems where the only way that this could become a serious issue is if something were to rupture or leak or have an abnormal incident and and then of course then it can raise the element of that area to a a, a real serious condition so because of that uh, and it's going to be controlled within limited because it's not part of the normal processes it's more storage uh Uh, maybe some of the containing systems passing through, and it's usually not gonna happen unless there's a rupture. And then hopefully you have other safety procedures in place anyway that's gonna limit the exposure. It's not something that's there all the time in in the environment. Because if it was, that would be a class one, division one. So since it's an abnormal condition it causes the elevated issue, then that would be a division two. Now that's kind of the, again, the higher overview, kind of keep it simplified. That's how it runs through all the classes class one, class two, class three. You have the division one, which is more critical application. It's the customary application to have this, this volatility of whether it's a substance within class one, class two, or class three in this environment as part of production at any given time. Whereas division two means, you know, it's only going to be at these levels of concern during an abnormal condition. And because there's a risk of that abnormal condition, because of where these, these, these volatile sources, I should say, are located, then that's why it's going to be treated as a division two. Okay, So obviously more restrictive in division one than it would be in division two. So what that does, and we're talking equipment too. So what this does, and hopefully you watched or listened, I should say, to the previous podcast, because that kind of breaks things down and I give you kind of a, a an overview of labels and things like that for different markings. But and one of the things to remember if we have equipment that's going to be utilized in certain applications, okay, whether it is where it's going to be, whether it's injunction boxes, uh, boxes with internal make or breaks, and things like that, where it's going to be located is really going to drive its listing and how it's evaluated. Um, so, and I mean, UL 2225 is dealing with fittings and having to do with explosion proof, things like that. So, you have to really, if you're getting into this, you really got to understand. The use. But good news is the name plates, once you look at the labels that are on this equipment, really, if you get a, a good grasp of it, it's not that difficult to, to know when you can use something in something else. But the questions that get asked is, can you use a piece of equipment approved for use in a Division One hazardous location and in a Division Two hazardous location? And, uh-huh. the, and the answer is yes, because if you're using the piece of equipment in a Division One, which is way more restrictive, than it would be in Division Two. Now, Division One is trying to limit the amount of gases and vapors that can be pushed through uh, the system or into this piece of equipment, and whereas Division Two is more dealing with combustible dust. Okay, so it's you know the code will define the the, the size of this dust, and it's obviously uh, more coarser and denser than you would be for vapors. So again. Two different things, but the equipment if, if it is approved uh, and acceptable through the AHJ and through all of its listings in a division one, there's a good chance that it'll be utilized in Division II. Always be sure to check with your local inspector and make sure they don't have a problem with that because some will have a problem if it's labeled as division one, but it does not state division two, then some can have an issue with that. But just understand that division one is more restrictive than division two. Okay. The other thing to remember is even though you're using it for Division 1 and you get the approval to use it for Division 2 Hazardous Location, you got to make sure that it still meets the same class and same group. And if you don't know what group and class are, uh, then you need to uh, go and watch uh, or listen to our podcast that we did prior to this. So the class would be, it still needs, whether it's Division 1 Division 2, it still needs to be in the same class. So if I'm using it for a Class 1, then if it's listed for Division 1, then nothing should restrict me from using it in Division 2, okay? It's still the same class. The only other thing is to also make sure that it meets the same group. That's key. So you have this grouping that you have to maintain, whether it's an A, B, C, or D, if you're dealing with gases, and E, F, and G, if you're dealing with combustible dusts. You have to make sure the same chemical group or whatnot is still being utilized, whether you're using it in Division 1 or Division 2. You have to keep all the parameters the same. All you're doing is using it Uh, in a class one division one and you say well let's say it's a group A but I want to use this same apparatus in a class one division two but I'm still using it in the same group A then it should be no problem right because it's already approved for the more restrictive division one division two is only if it is an abnormal condition but it's still the same class division one I mean class one and it's still the same group as long as it's say an A then you should be okay with that application. But as I say, should be's, always check with your inspector to make sure they're not confused on that. But again, it seems to me that it would not be an issue, obviously. Now, most of the equipment's going to be marked for its use. So if they allow it to be in a class one, division one, it's probably going to have the markings on it that says it's okay for class one, division two. Okay, But good to do your due diligence ahead of time and make sure you're not getting caught in a pickle on that by just looking at the label and then talking to your jurisdiction. Always communicate with your local jurisdiction before you do anything. All right, the next question is, in that same concept, what if I have equipment that is classed for, say, class one, but I want to use it in a class two hazards location? And the answer is, no, you can't. Even though the concept would be that you would think that class one, if it won't allow vapors uh, and things like that, that basically class two is less restrictive because it's dust, that you would think that class one would be okay in a class two. But they're made and they get tested differently. They're made for different purposes. I also remember that Class 1 is usually an application for an explosion situation in order to contain. So depending on the equipment you're using. Uh, so again, it has to go under different approvals. So it doesn't just mean that because something's Class 1 that you can use it in a Class 2. Okay? Um, it's Just to remember that most of the Class 1 locations, uh, equipment that's rated for that uh, are designed to contain an internal explosion while the Class 2 equipment um, is really designed to seal out dust. You know, so there's not something that are uh, intertwined between the two. So keep that in mind. So divisions, possibly within the same class. Equipment within classes, you can't use one for another class. Unless, of course, the equipment's already marked and labeled for it. If it does say on there, use for Class 1, Division 1, but then it says, okay, for Class 2, Division 1, then you're good to go, but just keep that in mind. So I do get emails from time to time, and I did get an email in this case after we did the first podcast, and somebody asked, Paul, can you give me some examples of class one locations? Because we're struggling with where these locations are. Uh, They might not deal with them. Well, you're dealing with things like natural or liquefied gas storage facilities, chemical plants, petrochemical or petroleum refineries, um, dip tanks uh, for electrolytic, Process um, maybe electroplating things like that, dip tanks. Um, you're dealing with if like, you don't know what chemicals are in there. Uh, you don't you got bulk handling storage facilities for where they store gasoline. Uh, a lot of them down in Houston area. Uh, things like that, oil, uh, well drilling up in Oklahoma. Uh, you have onshore things down in Houston, which they'll store gas, crude uh, oil, uh, all these type of things. I guess crude is the oil. All of those type of things in those areas can easily be a Class 1 location, but they're probably going to also have some Class 2 locations uh, as well, possibly. But the real issue is going to be the Class 1, and it's probably going to be Division 1, most of the areas that are part of the processing, and then you have immediately adjacent areas, which will probably be Class 1, Division 2. okay? Uh, and then you could have some unclassified areas as well intertwined in there. That's the other thing to remember. In a big facility... You could, you literally could have class one, division one location adjacent to a class one, division two location, and you could have an unclassified location adjacent to any one of those, depending on whether they ventilate it, whether it's uh, pressurized or what we're dealing with. So in the course of your design or, or what you're doing as an electrician, you could have all three different applications here where some require seal-offs. Uh, some require seal-offs that don't have to be explosion-proof, and then you could have some areas that require no seal-offs at all, okay? So uh, you just have to understand it. We don't want to put seal-offs and things like that, seal fittings, in areas that we don't need to because that can be really costly and drive up the cost of the job when they're not necessary. So it's important to have a great grasp of hazardous locations and where you can, and the easiest thing to do is just stop and think, what classes and what I need to do ahead of time because it should be on a drawing to let you know what's... I mean, I I have not seen these be uh, systems like this designed uh, tongue-in-cheek as you're going. These are usually designed out, engineers stamped, and they kind of go over these type of areas. And that's... Pardon me real quick. I gotta Something's driving me crazy. There we go. Um, You have these areas... Hold on. Hold on, folks. Something's driving me crazy. My mic's not set up right. There we go. Uh, you'll have these areas that you, you really will be clearly defined uh, what class they are and what division they are. And you just got to follow it. As an electrician, you just follow it. Now, you'll also have things like spray booths, uh, aircraft fueling service centers, uh, things like that, and hangars. There, there's there's cl- uh, class one, division one locations, class one, division two locations around the fueling portion sometimes for the aircrafts. Um, well drilling again offshore and onshore Uh, pipeline pumping areas where you're going to actually maybe underground pumping of oil to a common uh, pump station and in that station Uh, it could be a class one location you have to be aware of that and then believe it or not some printing machine areas where you have a large like some of these uh big printing houses You'll have areas where, the, where there's a lot of potential vapors in the air based on the type of chemicals or what they're using uh, that could create a class 1 location. Now, it might be a class 1 division 2 uh, or it could be a class 1 division 1. And again, as we said, class 1 means that it's available. The, these In this case, the gases are always potentially available. Okay? All right. So they're always potentially available Okay. at any given time. Uh, they're only available abnormal conditions, something ruptures or storage or handling and something spilled. That's a division two. Okay. All right. So then the next one that people ask about what about the dust? Can you give us some examples of where the dust would be for a class two? So, grain storage facilities where they handle and process various types of grains, corns, uh, wheat, things like that. Um, Coal storage, okay? West Virginia, handling and processing those facilities that store, handle, process, transport, coal creates dust, and that's a combustible dust. Uh, metal grindings or metal powder producing facilities, those will produce it uh, in quantities that can get in the air and make it volatile, combustible. So they should know their facilities, and again, we have a long track record of of where people really design these systems very well, so they'll know whether or not it's a class two, division one or division two location, okay? They're, they're used to doing this. Um, gunpowder or explosive plants. Anywhere they would produce, for example, fireworks. Obviously that's a, uh, if you've got the, the dust that can get up in the air due to this gunpowder or explosive material, then that is obviously a class two location. Where they're produced at, obviously at any given time, it's volatile levels could be in the air. So then you treat everything accordingly and that's going to be a class two division one. Areas where they might store it, which can only get out of certain containers in an accident or some kind of um, situation that, uh, that happens that is not the norm, then that could be a class two division two. Okay, it's an abnormal condition. And, of course, then you've got facilities that produce sugar, spices, starches, cocoa, uh, and they handle it or produce it or transport it. Uh, even when they're in, you know, bags, for example, a lot of times the sugar and cocoa, things are in bags, uh, the, the movement from point A to point B creates dust that simply moves through these packaging and comes out and gets into the air and you, it'll just be really dusty in the air. Well, all those type of things at certain levels can become combustible dust. So it's just things to think about. Uh, class 3 locations uh, are dealing with flying fibers, flyings, uh, and where are those? Well, anywhere you would have cotton, textiles, flax producing, or handling purposes, you're going to have these potential fibers and flyings into the air, uh, and they're easily ignitable. Uh, wood cutting, pulverizing, or maybe planing or shaping or wood mills and all those type of things, obviously those are going to be class 3 locations, and we have to take things into consideration for that uh, as well. So class three locations, again, think fibers and flying. So of the hierarchy, think, think class one, gas and vapors. Class two, dust. And class three, flying fibers or flyings, that type of thing. And of course, clothing manufacturers uh, will have these, these particles at all times during the production process as well. Uh, also, sometimes you can get into... Uh, paper mills that produce paper for newspapers and things like that will have this this flyings that are constantly in the air from the process where it actually brings it down to a pulp and, and, and all this processing, the ripping. So you might have an area where they process the material down into the pulp, but then once it gets into the equipment that's actually running it into the sheets and all this, really at that point, There's no flyings anywhere. So you could have a class three location and turn around and right next to it have an unclassified location, right? So all those things are are something to think about, okay? Now, kind of giving an overview, and I'm going to give an overview, and we're going to use because I want to to dabble in the flavor of the 2020 NEC, although it's not going to make a big deal for anybody who's working out of the 2017 code, um, kind of some of the things that we're we're looking at in the wiring methods that are allowed in a class one, division one location. All right. So in your code book, you should be at uh, article 501. We're dealing with class one locations and we're going to be at uh, 501.10. This is wiring methods. And you're going to see that it says wiring methods shall comply with 501.10A or B. Okay. And that's because a is dealing with the Division 1 and B is dealing with Division 2. Uh, the easiest way to understand the National Electrical Code when it comes to this is once you, and it can get confusing, once you distinguish whether or not you're dealing with a Class 1, you know to go to 501. The next thing you really need to break down is A or B. Am I dealing with a Class 1 Division 1 or a Class 1 Division 2? Because if I'm dealing with a, a Division 2, which is less restrictive than Division 1, then I can skip all of the basic requirements in A. Other than the fact that B is going to say, well, you know what? You can use all the wiring methods in Division 1 because they're more restrictive than you can in Division 2. But we're going to give you some more allowances in Division 2 because it's less restrictive as it would be in Division 1. Division 1 is very restrictive. So it gives you a list of what you can use. Okay, So a great example, rigid metal conduit, intermediate conduit. All right? In Division 1 it's got to be threaded. Whereas in Division 2, it doesn't necessarily have to be threaded. It can be threadless fittings. Okay, So you see that I still can use RMC in both, but this restrictiveness of the threading requirements for Division 1 versus Division 2. Okay, And with the threading, it makes it harder for gases and things, explosion, everything to, to move through these threads. It cools down or changes as it moves through. So Again, more restrictive in this application for Division 1 than you would be in Division 2. The next thing is you could obviously run MI cable. That's allowed in Division 1, okay? Um, And you have to have fittings that are listed for the location, okay? That's a big difference between saying something in the code here that fittings have to be listed. Then they would just be listed for the use with that product. But when something says listed for the location, what location are we talking about? we're talking about a class one location. So we have to have fittings that are listed for a class one location. So that's something to distinguish that you need to be aware of. Anytime you're reading something in here and it says that fittings need to be listed, okay? And if they're listed for the wiring method, that's great. But if it says it needs to be listed for the location, then you need to really understand where you're at in the code. If I'm in a class one location and something tells me it has to be listed for the location, just remember it also has to be evaluated and listed for use in whatever class location we're dealing with, okay? Distinctive difference in that. Now, you also have another one. It says, well, what if I'm dealing with industrial establishments? And again, you got to know what that is. Not all applications, residential, commercial, industrial, all those types, you need to know what qualifies as an industrial. And I'm going to leave that totally up to your jurisdiction because they're the ones that are going to classify whether or not something's in a zoned industrial and everything within that zoning is going to be treated as industrial uh, so that you don't get uh, into an argument about what's the difference between something considered residential, commercial, or or industrial, uh, light commercial, Uh, We'll let the zoning, we'll let the the jurisdiction determine that. But as an inspector, I need to qualify that up front. And hopefully your engineer qualifies that up front when you start, you know, putting out whether or not it's a class one location, which is the most restrictive of a hazardous location. Um, It's really important to understand who's going to establish that. Now with the use, it says, now I'm looking at item three, which is in the 2017 code. It's all grayed out. So it's kind of all kind of some restructured information here. It says... In industrial establishments with restricted public access, okay, restricted public access, uh, where the conditions of maintenance and supervision ensure that only qualified persons service the installation, it allows for type MCHL, which has its location, cable, listed for use in a Class 1, Zone 1, or Division 1 locations with a gas-vapor-type continuous corrugated metal sheath. Okay, so we're not using interlocked here, okay? It's got to be a continuous corrugated metal sheath. And then it has to have an overall jacket of suitable polymeric material and a separate equipment granite conductor in accordance with 250.122, of course that's size is based on the overcurrent device that's protecting the circuit, okay? And it needs and it says and terminated with fittings listed for the application. Okay, so this one reminds you that, well, since I'm using an MCHL, uh, that I have to have fittings that are listed for use with MCHL, and by proxy of that, that means they're going to be obviously listed for that location, even though it doesn't state that, okay? Uh, But because of the use of that fitting for use with that specific product, then, you know, it kind of covers itself with that application, okay? Now, as far as installations of MC, you still follow part two of 330. Again, it's still MC. It's just used... Uh, and tested uh, for a more uh, stricter environment that we're dealing with, which is a class one location. Okay. All right. So that's what your allowance there. Uh, and I don't want to go over all these. The next one was talking about the same kind of concept, industrial establishment, but uh, with maintenance and supervision, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but we're talking ITCHL, okay. Instrumentation tray cable uh, that has actually been evaluated uh, and has the, approved for HL applications, had its locations. Again, same concept. It's got to have a gas or vapor tight, continuous corrugated metal sheathing uh, and an overall jacket of suitable uh, polymeric material. So this is not your normal uh, everyday ITC cable. All right. So it's been evaluated for use in this application. All right. And then it goes through fiber optics. If you want fiber optics in there, it has a allowance there. And of course, six says in industrial establishments. This is number six now. It says an industrial staff restricted public access it seems to be a a key point here don't want to have the public can't get there where the conditions again maintenance and supervision uh, ensure that only qualified persons service the application and it's limited to 600 volts nominal or less and we're subject to where where the cable is not subject to physical damage okay so depending on how you install it that it's not going to be subject to physical damage and terminated with fittings listed for the location so this is an application where we're going to get ready to let you use tray cable so i kind of spoiled it there but you're going to have to also use fittings in this case it states you know what the fittings that you use have to be listed for the location where we saw with mchl it didn't necessarily say that but the fittings that go utilize with that are generally uh, evaluated for use with that mchl Here you can get TC fittings that aren't necessarily evaluated for that as well. So it's just um, reminding you that the fittings have to be listed for the location. Okay, So in this case, TCERHL cable, uh, it's been evaluated. Again, it's normal ER, uh, exposed run, but it also is evaluated the crushing impact that's a little higher and it, it, it obtains this HL on it and it says that it can be used in a class one division one location uh, and of course installation still has to meet the requirements permitted use of 336.10 but the key takeaway here is the requirement for it to be TCERHl, so it has to have a little more evaluation and then there's an informational note that says and I think I said this earlier uh, remember that those fittings for cables because that is a cable assembly multi, multi-conductor cable has to meet the requirements of UL 2225 and that is cables and cable fittings for use in hazardous classified locations. So obviously when you select that you're going to get a tray cable ER and you're going to be looking for the HL marking and of course fittings you're going to just look for and make sure that they also comply with the same type of division in, in zone which is division one zone one for class one and you're going to look for the markings and it's been evaluated for that. Okay, under the UL2225 mark. All right, and of course the last one here is a new wiring method. Uh, it's type P cable that usually has what's called a metal braided armor. Uh, it has an overall jacket. Uh, and of course the fittings for this type P product are also gonna have to be listed for that location. And what location? It's gotta be listed for a class one locations. And it works all together and that's under a new article 337, which will talk to you about the different type P cables. Okay. Uh, and again, you still have the same limitations for an, it's got to be an industrial establishment okay uh, and it's again has to have restricted public access. so other than that maintenance and supervision, uh, conditions for that, qualified persons servicing nothing changes. that's a common thread here uh, but uh, the fittings definitely have to be listed for the actual location okay all right so that kind of covers all the requirements and the one thing to remember is that if I'm doing a class one division two, it's less restrictive than this, I could use all these wiring methods. I mean, if I want to use this and I maybe I'm a contractor and I want to buy just one type and I want to just say, you know, I'm not going to carry all this different stuff. I'm just going to go with one. Then you could use any of these in a class one division two. Okay. Not a problem. And we're not going to talk about flexible connections here because you can read that in the code. Uh, I'm just going to kind of keep to the, to the wiring methods and, and not really get into flexibles. You can go read that, uh, and, and and see it for yourself. Uh, if you're following along in the 2020 code, it's 501.10A2, and that's going to give you the flexible connections. And there's only about four uh, aspects that you can have there. All right? Uh, one thing we will say that boxes and fittings for use in a Class 1 Division 1 location, um, it, basically all boxes and fittings shall be approved for Class 1 Division 1. Okay? And why is that? Because there's this element of explosion proofness that's required. Um, And entering into some of these enclosures, you have to maintain the integrity of that enclosure, whether they have internal fittings that are built into the equipment or you're coming and and, and you're going through an opening, threaded opening or whatnot, and you need a fitting that's going to maintain the rating, uh, those type of things. Uh, If you're using a flexible connection to, say, a a cord, uh, then you're going to have the application where you need to maintain the integrity of that system. Okay. But you have some flexible conditions here, options. Okay. Um, and it'll, it'll tell you uh, that you have to follow the provisions of 501.140, uh, the terminations of all those connectors uh, in those listed locations. And again, uh, just simply follow the list down here. And of course, that's where the new type P is now allowed in the same type of flexible condition. Again, nothing changes. The fittings still have to be rated for the, for the location where they're being used. Uh, but you do have some allowances. Again, that's only industrial. Okay, the, other, the other two options for flexible cords are not specific to industrial, uh, but you do have the application where if you want to use a TCER uh, or you want to use this type P cable, then it does have to be an, an industrial establishment in order to, with restricted public access to use those types of wiring methods, even flexible. Okay? But I don't want to go into the flexible. So let's get into class one, division two. What's different? Well, you could still use RMC. I could still use IMC. Not a problem with that. I can still use threaded. That's not a problem. But it allows me to use threadless fittings, okay? So I do have some allowances here to utilize that. So that is something that to be aware of. And again, I'm looking at 2020 code for those that are following. Along. If you don't have your 2020 code, um, I'm slowly going to migrate into the 2020. And so this is a good example where I am going to move some into the 2020, all right? Okay. So that's okay. Now, one thing to remember is that the general statement of B, which is class one, division two, uh, it does say that you can use any of the wiring methods of 501.10a, and we kind of went over those. I can use any of those if I want. But now I'm in the division two, so I'm going to get a little bit of relaxation here, okay? Uh, for example, uh, type two says, enclosed gastic bus, gasketed busways and enclosed gastic wireways. I don't have a ability in a Class 1, Division 1. But a Class 1, Division 2, I'm going to be able to introduce some busways. I'm going to be able to introduce some wireways, as long as they're gasketed and things like that, that I can have in these locations, okay? So, maybe i got to have some transition points, and I want to do it in a wireway or something like that. So, I do have some allowances here that I really don't have in a Class 1. The other thing to remember is, in a Class 1 location, uh, the gases can build up, okay? And so that can be a problem. Here in a, uh, there's the uh, class one division two, uh, it's only under abnormal conditions and it's not really gonna allow for buildup. And so we're gonna give you some other allowances here. Okay, now we're also gonna let you do PLTC, power limited. uh, And uh, we're gonna let you do PLTC ER, exposed run uh, cable. Very again, power limited. Uh, You're going to follow Part 2 and Part 3 of Article 725 because that's what we're dealing with, signaling and and things like that, so in control, okay? Um, And you can also install those in in a cable tray system. Again, cable tray supporting system. Obviously, it's TC. There you go. Um, Next is ITC and ITCE. That's instrumentation tray cable and, of course, instrumentation tray cable with the ER, exposed run, also, uh, permitted as well. Not a problem. Uh, here's the big one. Um, again, we're in a class one, division two, and it says type MC cable, MV, medium voltage, TC, and TCER cable, including installations in cable tray systems. Uh, it goes on to say type TCER shall be installed, uh, shall include, excuse me, TCER shall include an equipment grounding conductor in addition to a drain wire that might be present okay so even if you have the drain wire that's not going to serve the purpose i have to have and you shouldn't think it ought to by the way but i have to have an equipment grounded conductor in there it says all cable types shall be terminated with listed fittings that's a big difference okay these are listed fittings for the wiring method not listed fittings for the location okay so again inside of an application of class one division two less restrictive you would have uh, inside of class 1. Why is that important? Well, you're not required to have explosion-proof enclosures in a class 1 division 2 unless, of course, you have something that's making or breaking or creating an arc or a source of a potential issue, okay? Uh, It's just normal splices, normal whatever applications, then um, it would be pointless to require that you terminate this in some other special type of fitting when the box itself is not required to be. Now, here's the other thing. Type MC. It's not requiring it to be hazardous location MC. It's not requiring it to be continuous corrugated. It's just regular MC can be utilized in this application, but I have to use a listed fitting. Now, don't get that confused with if I happen to have a make or break in this location, which requires, and I'm saying make or break, a switch, a relay, or something that could produce an arc. You put it in an explosion proof enclosure, even in a class one division two. You put it in there, uh, and you want to bring MC to it. Well, that could be a problem because as you bring it to the location, the fitting, you have to maintain the integrity of that enclosure, okay? So it could be hard to do that with an MC because unless it's corrugated continuous, MC has, uh, it's just interlocked. So it's not a sealed type of wiring method, okay? But the point is here, if you terminate it into the regular equipment in this location, that it's not explosion proof, then in this application here, I can just use a regular fitting, a regular MC that's listed for use with MC. And that's the same thing for the tray cable, same thing for the medium voltage and all that kind of thing, okay? All right, Uh, the next thing would be, um, it just kind of goes through the different lists and I won't go through all of them. You got fiber optic cable, cable bus, and and again, you have type P. Uh, Again, it seems to be that type P still wants that uh, industrial Establishment Restricted Public Access Application for this Type-P uh, for use in this application. Uh, Type-P typically, in case you, you didn't know or those that might not know, uh, a lot of times is used in uh, marine shipboard cable applications. Okay, so that's kind of where the, the Type-P came from. Uh, very few manufacturers make it. I can tell you we don't make it at Encore, but uh, it is available out there and it's got into the code in the, in the 2020 code. Okay, Now, as we're getting down to the end, and I won't go into all these wiring methods, just remember you can do all the ones in Class 1, Division 1, that's 501.10A1, or all of the ones that are allowing you additionally in 501.10B1, which is uh, all these other applications that are going to allow you to do it, okay? Then you can do it. Um, I guess one that I should probably read, is says where metal conduits will not provide sufficient corrosion resistance any of the following shopper permitted so if i'm using let's see one of the hardwire methods like rmc imc all right then i'm allowed to and it's an issue of sufficient corrosion uh application well then i can go with and it gives me an a b c and d here and what do we got we says well it says i can use a listed reinforced thermal setting resin that's rtrc with factory elbows and associated fittings Uh, all marked with the suffix XW, okay? So if I want to use RTRC, I can do it uh, in this environment. Uh, It says, okay, you can also use PVC-coated rigid metal conduit, RMC, with factory elbows, okay, and associated fittings. Interesting enough here that since the hazardous locations considers a corrosive environment uh, and it needs something extra, that they allow you to put PVC coating on the rigid. Obviously, in swimming pools where they consider that corrosion, they seem to think that a PVC jacket product's is not going to help. And they let you use regular RMC and IMCs or EMT. But yet, here, which you could have a lot higher concentrations of a potential corrosive vapor or something in the environment, but they're okay to simply PVC coat it and it's considered done. Boy, how ironic, right? So anyway... Here, you can, you can PVC coat rigid RMC. Uh, it also goes on to say you can do the same thing with IMC. Uh, and then, of course, it gives you one more. It says, well, what about environments that are industrial establishment? means it's restricted to public, uh, and it's got to be serviced uh, maintenance, maintenance and supervision by only qualified persons. Um, then it's going to let you use Schedule 80 PVC conduit, factory elbows, and associated fittings for that. Uh, so, again depending on the environment, depending on the condition, um, we're going to let you use other wiring methods, which you obviously could not use in a class one, division one location. So it's a little more relaxed. So it's really important to determine up front whether or not it's a class one, division one versus a class one, division two, because it's a little more lenient and some less expensive wiring procedures, okay, in a class one, division two than it would be in a class one, division one. Okay, so it, pays to do your due diligence on that, and hopefully the engineers have already done that, okay? Uh, and again, we're not going to go over the flexibles, but one of the things that I want to talk about before we actually leave 501.10, uh, which is brought up a lot, is the last paragraph. Uh, it says, where seals are required for boundary conditions as defined in 501.15a4, okay? So that's a transition between a division one into a division two, for example. It says, the division one wiring method shall extend, Okay, so Division 1, whatever these wiring methods we saw, like RM- IMC, RMC, threaded, whatever, shall extend into the Division 2 area through the boundary. Say it's a wall that separates Class 1, Division 1 from a Class 1, Division 2. It has to extend into the Division 2, so that wiring method, the more restrictive wiring method in Class 1, Division 1, has to continue through, okay, all the way up to the seal at the Division 2 area, okay which shall be located on the division 2 side of the division 1 division 2 boundary okay so it's stating where that seal has to be later on it say it can be on either side okay but here it's making a specific statement that the seal has to be on the division 2 side if you're going from a class 1 division 1 to a class 1 division 2 by that last statement here okay where the conditions for boundary take place. And of course that is 501.1584 is going to talk about that. Okay, so remember that. I usually tell people to highlight that. That's a an important thing to remember uh, in your code book because later in the code it's going to tell you that can be on either side you want it to be. Uh, but this statement right here is making it very clear for the ceiling requirement that's moving from a class one to a class two. Okay, all right, I'm not going to talk about the... Um, the applications of the flexible, again, for this one, so that you kind of, I don't want to, you know, you can obviously read them uh, and, and, and understand that type thing. Uh, what I will talk about of importance is, again, so we were talking about boxes and fittings, for example, in the Class 1 Division 1, Explosion Proof. Now we're talking about boxes and fittings and and for a Class 1 Division 2. And here's what it says uh, in the code under uh, 501.10. Uh, b, I believe this is B4. It says boxes and fittings shall not, okay? It says shall not be required to be explosion proof except as required by 501.105B2, 115 b one and 501.150B1. What's the difference here? Well, those areas usually will enclose something that could create an arc, okay? Make or break, switching, or something... And if that's the case, even though it's a Class 1 Division 2, you're going to need a box or fittings that are designed explosion-proof, okay? Even though it's in a Class 1 Division 2. Any other application where this doesn't exist, then those boxes and fittings are not required to be explosion-proof, okay? So that's, you know, something important to always remember uh, in those applications. Now, if you want to explosion-proof everything and spend the money and the extreme cost that it takes to do that, you go for it but it's absolutely not necessary, okay? And if you want to know what constitutes an explosion-proof fitting and all those type of things and evaluate it, then you just simply want to go get your copy of UL-2225, uh, and it talks about cables and cable fittings for use in hazardous locations. Uh, and again, just to, uh, usually, um, when we get into something like that, the one that confuses the most people is the cable applications. So this is where you're going to go to get all those details for that, okay. All right. So I guess the next thing we're going to go into is we're going to talk a little bit about seals. Uh, we're going to get into 501.15, uh, and so I'm going to try to. I don't know how far we're going to get through this. Uh, we'll try to at least get through conduit kind of seals for a Class One Division One, and then maybe we'll do another podcast for Class One Division Two as we move further on through, because we also want to talk about the aspect of, um, press, you know, dealing with, um, where we might have, uh not normal seals, but we're something that has to do with drainage. Okay. From one location to another. Okay. Okay. So a couple things to remember. First things we're going to talk about is when we're talking about seals and drainage, in uh, 501.15. Okay. So 501.15 can get really, really confusing. So the, again, the way to break this down is to determine what division you're dealing with. You already know you're in a class one. Okay? We, we get that. But you really have to break it down and realize that A under 501.15 is dealing with conduit seals for class one, division one. If you don't have that kind of location, then you go to class, then you're gonna to go to 501.15 B, which is conduit seals for class one, division two. Again, two different, if you read them all together, it can get confusing. Break it up, determine what location you're dealing with, and then determine what division is is being applied here, and that's going to help you out. So if we're looking at Class 1, Division 1, we already know that the integrity of this location requires explosion-proof fittings, explosion-proof enclosures, all this type of stuff. So let's kind of look at it. So let's talk conduit seals. So 501.15, and you'll see some information here that says seals in conduit and cable systems. Um, shall comply with 501.15 A through F, and you're you're going to get an A, B, C, D, E, F. Um, uh, And then you're you're going to see that it says seals compounds, uh, sealing compounds shall be used in type MI cable termination fittings uh, to exclude moisture and other liquids from the cable installation, okay? Okay. So sealing compound application for the MI cable. And of course, we're talking at the first part of that, we're talking about seals in conduit and cable systems has to c- comply with 501, 15A through F. So that's the overall. So A is dealing with the conduit. B is dealing with these conduit seals for division two, whereas A is dealing with division one. Uh, c is talking about overall for class one, division one and two, uh, gives you some a concept. If you have a seal that's required to meet some of the applications uh, in 501.15, then you're going to look at the fitting, the compounds, the thickness of the compound, all this kind of stuff. All right. So that's why we have to take this in pieces so that it doesn't get confusing. Okay. All right. Number one, let's deal with the conduits and let's deal with conduit seals as they enter an enclosure. So that's A1. It says, in Class 1, Division 1 locations, conduit seals shall be located in accordance with 501 a one through A4. So now A1 deals with entering enclosures. So every... You know, remember, we're talking about the concept here of entering the enclosure with the raceway. It says, each conduit entry into an ex- explosion-proof enclosure, remember what we're talking about, shall have a conduit seal either... Uh, where either of the following conditions apply, okay? So there's a one, two, blah, blah, blah. Number one, okay? It says, the enclosure contains an apparatus such as a switch, circuit breaker, fuse, relay, or resistor that may produce an arc, a spark, or temperatures that exceed 80% of the auto-ignition temperature. Okay, so at a certain point, the, the equipment can generate enough temperature rating on the surface of the material that could cause an auto-ignition to whatever, uh, and this is based in degrees Celsius, of whatever gas or vapor that's involved in that environment. It could cause it to, to all of a sudden get to that auto-ignition temperature point and then just start to combust on itself or explode on itself. Okay, So that's the kind of things you have. So if it's containing something like that, then it has to be... Uh, an explosion proof, okay? Obviously, explosion proof apparatus or enclosure, all right? Now, it says there are some exceptions to this rule, okay? All right, the exception is, it says seals shall not be required for conduit entering an enclosure under any of the following conditions. So, we have some conditions that say, okay, so if you have a fuse. Breaker, relay, resistor, whatever, that can produce an arc. Obviously, make or break or whatnot can produce an arc. You've all heard it when you flick the switch or something switches, you know. So, what conditions would I not have to have uh, the application of the seal? Well, it says, number one, it says, well, what if the switch, circuit breaker, fuse, relay, or resistor is enclosed using a, a chamber that's hermetically sealed against the entrance of gases or vapor? So, it's designed that way. It's hermetically sealed switches or a sealed circuit breaker. Well, if that's the case, nothing can get to that arc anyway. So nothing could could happen. So if that's the case, you don't need the seal. Okay, they're probably really expensive, but that's an option. The next it says, well, if the switch or circuit breaker, fuse relay or resistor is immersed in oil in accordance with 501.115B12. So if it's oil immersed, then, okay, then if that's the type of switch or circuit breaker or fuse or relay based on whatever that equipment is, meets all the requirements and it's oil um, and it's immersed in it, then I don't have to do the seals. Obviously, it can't penetrate through the oil uh, and get to the piece of equipment. So obviously, that's not a concern. So then I don't have to have the seals. The next says, well, what if the switch or circuit breaker, fuse relay or resistor are enclosed within an enclosure and it says identified for location and marked leads factory sealed or factory sealed or seal not required or equivalent then I don't need the seal okay it's already has one built into it it's already a factory sealed piece of equipment and how it's designed um, or it could just say a seal's not required well that's common sense if it's not required we don't need the seal okay before it enters into this enclosure all right Uh, The next option to get away from the seal, that's what we're talking about here, uh, is the switch circuit breaker, fuse relay, or resistor is part of a non-incentive circuit, okay? It just doesn't produce enough energy. Even if it did create some type of arc, it's just not enough to even create the arc or even create the ignition source, okay? If that's the case, then what's the point of the seal? There's no point in it, okay? And then, of course, that was all of the exceptions to... Uh, where you had circuit breakers, fuses, relays, or whatever that can do, to sparks, or whatever. Then you have another two. It says, well, um, so Seals, it says, any entry in metric designator, trade size two or larger, and the enclosures containing terminals, splices, or taps. Okay, so what are we talking about? So the first one was talking about entering to an enclosure, and then it told you that any of the closures that contain these devices or apparatuses or switches or whatnot... And then you had some exceptions to that. Well, number 2 is telling us up front. It says, "Hey, doesn't matter whether or not it's any one of these. It says, the entry in metric designator 53 and that's trade size 2 or larger and the enclosure contains terminals, splices or taps, then it doesn't matter. Two and larger is still going to require the seal. Okay? So you have the allowance uh for only a requirement for enclosures that contain fuses, circuit breakers, relays, resistors, but it didn't mandate it for taps and splices if it was smaller than trade size two, okay. Um, but then you kick into it and says, well, you know what? What I'm going to say is if the entry is two trade size two, or many people say just two inch, is trade size two or larger, then in the enclosure and contains terminals, splices, or taps then guess what you're going to have seals okay like it or not you're going to have seals all right now it goes on to say an enclosure identified for the location okay and then when we say identified means it's an enclosure that is literally marked class 1 division 1 okay it says an enclosure identified as a uh, for the location and marked leads factory sealed means the leads coming out of it or poking out of it, but it means there's a seal where it actually goes into the enclosure. If you look into it, you kind of see the the, uh, epoxy or whatever that's into it and these these leads come out of it. Uh, Or it says factory sealed or where it says seals not required or equivalent shall not be considered to serve as a seal for another adjacent enclosure that are required to have a conduit seal. So what are we talking about? So I could have two enclosures. Okay, and they are uh, side by side, but maybe they're a, a certain distance apart. And you're required to have a seal within 18 inches. Okay, and this seal for this enclosure can't qualify for the other enclosure. Okay, that maybe is still within 18 inches of that seal that's on that piece of equipment, but you'd have to add a second seal for the other enclosure. You can't use the seal that's on this piece of equipment that has these markings on it that says it is, that doesn't require a seal. That doesn't qualify to protect the other one, okay? So you still have to have the seal over there, okay? And let's kind of read what it says here on where these seals have to be. It says conduit seals, and if you're following along, I'm still reading in 501.15a. Uh, after all that, I'm reading at the very bottom of, of A1. It says conduit seals shall be installed within 18 inches from the enclosure or as required by the enclosure marking. Okay. Remember, like we said, the marking could have the seal built into it. Okay. Now it says only threaded couplings or explosion proof fittings such as unions, reducers, elbows, or capped elbows that are not larger than the trade size of the conduit shall be permitted between the sealing fitting and and the explosion-proof enclosure. Why is that important? Uh, because if we're gonna allow a certain trade size conduit, we don't want to use some type of additional elbows or capped elbows that are larger because they create more volume and it allows gases and vapors to store up or stack up inside of that actual fitting and that could be a problem, okay? So, uh, again, seals required within 18 inches from the enclosure. Uh, unless the enclosure itself already has it equipped based on its markings. We just kind of saw that a minute ago. Uh, again, only threaded couplings or explosion-proof fittings, such as unions, reducers, elbows, or capped elbows, and that are not larger than the tray size of the conduit. Okay, that's important. Okay, can't be larger. It must be equipped and sized in, for the raceway size you're using. Okay, shall be permitted between the ceiling fitting and the explosion-proof enclosure, okay? So keep that in mind in your design, folks, uh, what you're going to have in there, okay? Obviously, less is best between the seal-off and the enclosure, okay? All right, uh, so that's your sealing your requirements for entering enclosures. Then we get into what's called pressurized enclosures, okay? So that is a two, and now what are we talking about that? Well, let me read it to you and we can elaborate. It says conduit seals shall be installed within 18 inches. So we're getting this 18 inches uh, that is really important for us to remember between all these enclosures, okay? Whether it's entering an enclosure that is explosion-proof or we're entering an enclosure that is pressurized enclosure that is actually for a Class 1, Division 1 location, it says conduit seals shall be installed within 18 inches of the enclosure in each conduit entry into a pressurized enclosure where the conduit is not pressurized as part of the protection system. Say so, so the enclosure might be pressurized, but the conduit that's supplying to it or coming to it is not part of that scheme, if you will, of, of protection scheme. Alright? So if that's the case, then you have to it. Now it does give you some informational notes to kind of tell you like saying, well what, what in the world is a what in the world is a purged or pressurized enclosure? What is that all about? Well, if you wanna learn more about that, then you're gonna look at NFPA 496, okay? And that's gonna give you some information on those types of purge or pressurized enclosures. Uh, but we do have an informational note here that says, installing a seal as close as possible to the enclosure will reduce problems with purging the dead space in the pressurized conduit, okay? All right, so if that's what you're dealing with, so again, we're talking about the pressurized enclosure. Keep that seal within 18 inches. Uh, and the closer, the better uh, for that application. Uh, but you can't, you have to have within 18 inches of that enclosure. Okay. Now, the next one is three. And again, we're, we're talking uh, seals here, and it says two or more uh, exposure-proof uh, enclosures. So I have two of them side by side. Okay. Maybe, you know, I'm coming up with a T and then I go one way and one goes the other way. Uh, and so it says, well, I've got two or more of them. It says, where two or more explosion-proof enclosures um, that require conduit seals are connected by a nipple or runs of conduit not more than 36 inches between them. Okay, they're connected together. It says, a single conduit seal in each such nipple connection or run of conduit shall be considered sufficient if the seal is located not more than 18 inches from either enclosure, what are we talking about? Well, so if I have an enclosure and we're talking about the wall of the enclosure to an enclosure that is, let's just keep it simple, horizontally on the same plane and it's 36 inches to the right of the one and I'm using one conduit between them, uh, I could put one seal in the very middle so that it's not more than 18 inches from the one on the left and it's not more than 18 inches on the one on the right, then that one seal is adequate. Now, here's the thing. If it's 48 inches, then each one of those enclosures are going to require a seal within 18 inches, okay? So this is an allowance when you're dealing with two or more and you're not going to span more than 36 inches between it. And if I have one seal in the middle, then it could serve... Both, Okay. So if I had a a 24 inch between them, um, I could put one seal in there in the middle or maybe slightly to the left or the right. As long as I'm not more than 18 inches from the other. Okay. Then I'm not going to have a problem. All right. Okay. That's the allowance in there. All right. Now. The last one that we deal with is the big one that people want to know about, and that's the boundary. This is when I'm leaving a Class One Division One in the seal that's necessary to go over into another classification, whether it's Class One Division Two, or maybe you're going into a Class One Division uh, unclassified area uh, based on what's going on in that unclassified area that creates an unclassified area. So we're talking about transmission from the gases, and why is that important? Well. In the class one, division one location, you could have an explosion. If you didn't have these seals for the boundary, then that explosion within that enclosure that is designed to contain it, okay? It's not gonna stop it, it's designed to contain it. Um, then what happens is it blows through the raceway just like it would be out of a shotgun. And so those seals can reduce that likelihood. It's not gonna eliminate it 100% because no seal is perfect. But it will reduce the likelihood of that and help keep it back at the enclosure that it's supposed to be. Also, it keeps from transmitting something from one location to another location, okay? Uh, And so that's the importance of the SEALs, especially when we're dealing with Class 1 Division 1, and understanding that these locations, uh, an explosion could take place and it could build up. That's another reason why the fittings that are permitted uh, in a Class 1 Division 1 location between SEALs and and the explosion-proof enclosure uh, can't... Be you can't have something like an oversized fitting that's going to allow additional accumulation of gases or vapors because it can become an explosive condition. All right, so it's important that all those components are maintained. So you could have an explosion, and without that fitting, it could allow the communicable systems between one classification over to another or one division to another to allow an explosion to happen in one and then carry that incident into another and then create a chain effect explosion in another location that typically is not rated the same as a class 1, division 1. You see what I'm saying? So that's why the seals are so important. So when it comes to boundaries, okay, here's what we're dealing with in 501.15a4. A class 1, division 1 boundary. It says a conduit seal shall be required... For each conduit run leaving a division one location, period. Okay. Now, it says the seal fitting, okay, and this requires it to be a sealing fitting, not a f- compound that you squeeze in or push into a raceway. This is a fitting. And it says the fitting shall be permitted to be installed on either side of the boundary uh, within 10 feet of the boundary. Okay. And it shall be designed and installed to minimize the amount of gas or vapors within the portion of the conduit installed in the Division I location that can be communicated beyond the seal. All right? Now, the conduit run between the conduit seal and the point at which the conduit leaves the Division I location shall contain no unions, couplings, box, or other fittings except for the listed explosion proof reducing uh, reducer installed at the conduit seal, in case you had to reduce it down to go into the conduit seal. But then again, that has to be an explosion proof reducer to be able to do that, okay? So we're allowed you to do this now for the Class 1, Division 1. Again, one of the problems I have with this, and I could be totally wrong, and email me if you if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that we just got the rules in the wiring methods in 501.10, that stated where the seals are required for boundary conditions, as defined in 501.15a4, which we're just now reading, it says the Division One wiring method shall extend into the Division Two. We got that to the seal, uh, which shall be located on the Division Two side of the of the boundary. Uh, so it seems weird to me. Uh, And I guess the reason is this rule could be from a class 1, division 1 to any other class. It could be an unclassified. It could be into, I don't know, class 3. And then you would have this. But if you're going from a class 1 to a class... uh, From a class 1, division 1 to a division 2, then the previous wiring method rule requires that seal to be on the class 2 side of this application. All right? Okay. Whereas here it kind of says, well, no, it could be any side of of the boundary. Uh, And that's not necessarily what I just read earlier, okay? So, again, if I'm reading that wrong, again, I tell people all the time, you know, I'm not an expert in in hazardous locations. It's just sometimes what I read is what I read, and that's what it's telling me I can be on either side. But just a minute ago, it says very specifically where that seal had to be if I'm going from one boundary to another. And it tells me that wiring method has to continue through the application, all right? Okay. Anyway, maybe I'm reading that wrong, Hey, but anyway, somebody will correct me as they always do. All right, so that is all of the applications for the Class 1 Division 1 location in in the boundary and the seal. Now, let's kind of move into the Class 1 Division 2. I'll go on and and move into that. So it says, Class 1 Division 2 seal, conduit seals, shall be located in accordance with 501.15 B1 and B2. So B1 and B2. All right, number one, the first one says, okay, well enclosures. Okay. So I require seals for enclosures, but do I require the seals for every enclosure that's allowed in the class one division two? Absolutely not. Uh, when it comes to, for example, when we're dealing with, with conduit, here's what we say. Let me read you uh, 501.15 B1. This is entering those enclosures again. It says, for connections to enclosures that are required to be explosion proof. So this is the trigger here entry into those enclosures that are only required to be explosion-proof, and that usually means that they have some make or break or switching or relay or fuse or circuit breaker, or whatever they can do, some arc a spark or whatnot. If that's the case, it says a seal shall be provided in accordance with 501.15A11. Uh, and, of course, you see that we already previously did 501.15A11, which is dealing with circuit breakers, fuses, relays, so we got it. So that's why that would require an explosion-proof enclosure. I get it. And I got to maintain the rating at the maintained assembly. I I get it all. And then it talks about A3 as well. So when we're talking about A3, that's, again, when you have two or more explosion-proof enclosures. So, again, we're dealing with explosion-proof enclosures that are required to be explosion-proof. Then I have to have um, the seals as I would if it was a Class 1, Division 1. I get it. I'm okay with that. And then it says... All portions of the conduit runner nipple between the seal and the enclosure shall comply with 501.10A, and of course that's the wiring methods that's required in 501.10A because it is explosion-proof enclosures. Okay, yes, it's in a Class 1 Division 2, but because it contains any of the the uh, apparatuses, switches, circuit breakers, or whatever that could make a break create a spark, then I have to raise that level of protection, and that's why I'd have to have the explosion proof. So when I tell people If you're in a Class 1, Division 2, and you have to have an explosion proof enclosure in that that location, even though it's not a Class 1, Division 1, but something mandates the fact that it has to be there because you've got relays or fuses or whatever, and under abnormal condition, you're still going to have volatile uh, gases or vapors in that area, and they're concerned about it, then remember that when you're there, treat it like it's a Class 1, Division 1, and you won't go wrong. Okay if you're working on explosion-proof enclosure, all right, because of the rules, whether or not, again, you're dealing with the relays, fuses, circuit breakers, or whatnot, okay, you with me? So don't, that way you don't get confused, okay? Now, what if you're not dealing with an enclosure that has to be explosion-proof? Because it's not. It's a class one division two. It's not required to be explosion-proof. Uh, it's not dealing with the make or break or whatnot and all these type of things. Well, if that's the case, then... Remember that I can use standard fittings for whatever the wiring method that I'm using, okay, to that application, okay. And they listed for that wiring method, all right? Okay, so that keeps you from getting confused with it. Um, and any other normal wiring methods for that. So that's when entering enclosures, all right? And this kicks in only to be restricted for these seals. In the way it states it, these seals are only required when you're entering an enclosure. That is required to be explosion proof. That way you just don't get confused when a seal is required. Next, let's talk about boundaries. So even though I have equipment that's in there and it's to be in a class one division two location, that means the equipment is listed for that. Means that if a piece of equipment is in that location and it's listed for class one division two, that means it's evaluated for it. um, Whether it's internally sealed, whether it doesn't generate anything that can create some kind of arc or whatever. So they put this marking on it you still have the condition where you're in a class one division two where you could have a breach of abnormal condition and we want to make sure that we're not communicating this material or this volatile vapors or gases after the, the abnormal condition to another location. So we have to have seals at a class one division two boundary when we're moving from that boundary to maybe an unclassified location. Okay, So we have rules for that. So let's read that over and you'll see that in 501.15 B2. Now let's talk about the boundary because we, we talked about the boundary in 501.10 A, excuse me, 501.15 A4. Now we're talking about the boundary for a Class One Division Two. It says a conduit seal shall be required in each conduit run leaving a Class One Division Two location. Now period. Okay, so it's leaving it. We already required it when you're going from a Class One Division Two. Okay, so now we're going from a class one division two into another location. We got to have this seal in the conduit run. Notice it says conduit run. Okay? Now it says the ceiling fitting shall be permitted to be installed on either side of the boundary within 10 feet of the boundary, and it shall be designed and installed to minimize the amount of gas. It's not gonna totally stop at all. It's designed to minimize the amount of gas and vapors within the portion of the conduit installed in the actual Division 2 location that can be communicated beyond that seal over into the other location. Now, it also says now, it'll say, well, rigid metal conduit or threaded steel intermediate metal conduit shall be used between the seal fitting and the portion at which the conduit leaves the Division 2 location and a threaded connection shall be used at the seal fitting. Okay. Specifically tells us the wiring methods that we're allowed to do when we're leaving a boundary. No problem. It says, The conduit run, okay, between the conduit seal and the point at which the conduit leaves the Division Two location shall contain no unions, no couplings, no boxes, or other fittings except... For a listed explosion proof reducer installed at the conduit seal. Okay. So as you're moving down. So I could have this reducer and I could put it in the seal and I could reduce it down. But other than that, from the point it leaves that boundary to the seal, that is not gonna allow you to have any couplings, unions, boxes, or whatnot. Okay, simple concept. Continue through to all the way to your seal. Okay? Now it goes on to say, well, what about the seal itself? It says, seals, such seals shall not be required to be explosion-proof, but shall be identified for the purpose of minimizing the passage of gases permitted under normal operating conditions and shall be accessible. Okay, So you have to be able to access the seal. Uh, and again, um, it's not required to be explosion-proof. Okay, in order to do this, right. But it does have to have be identified for the purpose of minimizing the passage of gases permitted under normal operating conditions. Okay, not an abnormal, normal operating condition. Okay. Now, as as always, before your brain, your your brain totally gets to mush, because we have some exceptions here that we'll look at for this boundary ceiling, but before it even goes to mush, uh, there's an informational note that says if you want to learn more about the various tests that go on for conduit tubing and cable fittings go to UL 514B but I'll remind you that this has nothing to do with the hazardous location rating of fitting that's 2225 you want to go to this is fittings in general so great document to have in order to understand more about conduit and tubing and fittings and the testing requirements and all of that under 514B Okay, but when you're dealing with the, uh, the fittings that have to do, for example, and cables in a or cable fittings in a hazardous location, then you want to look at 2225. Okay, and I'm not an expert on either one of those. Okay, but I do have copies of them in case I need to go look something up. All right, so now exception number one, and we're talking about exception to the boundary seals. It says number one, it says metal conduit that contains no unions couplings, boxes or fittings that pass completely through a division two location with no fittings installed within 12 inches of either side of the boundary shall not be required to be sealed if the termination points of the unbroken conduit are located in unclassified locations. okay? So if it's simply moving from point A to point B in a class 1 Division two location just gets in the way, and it moves through it as long as none of those you're doing none of the fittings are within 12 inches of either side of that boundary kind of either further into the actual area that's considered class one division two then i don't really have to worry about sealing it as long as once it's i get to a point where it terminates that it actually is terminating into a uh, an area that is um where the termination is going to be considered an unclassified location, okay? So the other thing to remember is when I say passing through, I'm talking about literally passing through, okay? I'm not talking about stopping, okay? I'm not talking about hitting boxes, okay? All right, I'm I'm talking about where you install it through uh, and it it goes, uh, unbroken conduit is located in the unclassified areas. You might have a fitting inside, as long as it's not within 12 inches inside of the class two location, because depending on how big it is, but it's got to be unbroken conduit to the termination points in the unclassified area, okay? So it's just poking through and then turns around and, and, and hits, the, hits the termination point, okay? So it's kind of keep that in perspective, all right? Uh, number two, uh, exception number two for that, and again, we're talking exceptions to class one Division two boundary seals. Okay, the exception to those. So the next is let's say I have a conduit system, okay, and it's going to be terminating in an unclassified location. Okay, an area where it's not considered a class one division one or class one division two. In case this case we're talking division two, but it's the conduit system itself is going to be terminating into an unclassified location, and where the metal conduit transitions to let's say a cable tray, or it transitions to a bus, a cable bust, or uh, a ventilated uh, busway, or for example, to a type MI cable, or a cable not installed in any cable tray or raceway system shall not be required to be sealed where passage from the division two location, okay, to the unclassified location where the following conditions are met. So I'm not gonna need a boundary seal where I'm doing this transition from a division two to an unclassified area under in in talking about those conduit systems and they terminate in an unclassified location um, where the following conditions are met okay number one it says well if the unclassified area is outdoors or the unclassified location is indoors and the conduit system is entirely in one room contained all in one room then okay then I don't need the seal what's the point Um, if it's outside it'll dissipate what's the point uh, the other one says, well, the conduit shall not terminate at any enclo- enclosure containing an ignition source uh, in normal operation. Okay? So if I'm transitioning from a uh, class one, division two through the boundary and the conduit system is terminating in an unclassified location and I'm, I'm terminating at this point uh, and the conduit is terminating into an enclosure, but that enclosure doesn't have any ignition source. Um, then basically saying, don't worry about it. You you don't need it. It's an unclassified area, and there's no ignition source there, uh, and so there's some allowances there that you can you run into. Okay. Uh, the next one says an exception says well, uh, conduit systems that passes from an enclosure or a room that is unclassified, okay, and as a result of pressurization into a class two location shall not require a seal at the boundary. So if this room that is unclassified due to pressurization uh, and it's passing into a class one division two location, then I'm not required to have that boundary seal, right? Now, there is a note under here that reminds you that if you want to know more about pressurization and, and purge systems and all that, which I am absolutely not going to go into, uh, then you can go to NFPA. 496 and you can get some information on purged and pressurized enclosures for electrical equipment okay Now lastly is an exception again to the boundary seal is if you're dealing with certain segments of above ground conduit systems, okay, RMC, IMC, anything's a conduit okay um, shall not be required to be sealed where passing from a division two location into an unclassified location, if all the following conditions are met. Now, it's not a if any. It's all of the, con- of the conditions are met. So you have a bunch of conditions. So again, segments, portions of an above ground conduit system are passing through. And you have one, two, three, four, five items here that you have to meet all of these. Now, I can tell you, um, if you have this condition, somebody's been going through this little list and they've created it and, and you can meet it. Other than that, you, you, it's not like you can meet three of the five and you're okay. Okay, you got to meet all. The first one says no part of the conduit system segment passes through a division one location. So at no point can it move through a division one, obviously. Um, system where the conduit segment contains unions, couple couplings, boxes, or fittings that are located within twelve inches of the division one location. Okay. So again, if any of it passes through a division one, okay, uh, and that that's one of the things we have to consider. All right. So that's one condition. And so no part of it passes through the Division 1, and I don't have any boxes, fittings, or whatever that are going to be located within 12 inches of the Division 1 location. Okay, so it's further into the actual... It it might pass through it, but it goes further into the Division 2 location. It's not within 12 inches of that Division 1. Okay, that's the first condition. Okay, we might be able to meet that one. The next says the condo system segments is located entirely in outdoor locations? Well, (laughs) so it's got to be outdoors. So that's two. So if you can't meet two, it's indoors. And if if your condition is indoor, you might as well stop right there because it's got to be outdoor. Um, The next one says the conduit system segment is not directly connected to canned pumps processing or service connections for flow pressure uh, or analysis measurement and so forth that depend on a single compression seal, diaphragm or tube to prevent flammable or combustible fluids from entering the conduit system. So we can't have any of these liquids that could actually push back through uh, and um, get into the system Uh, even though it's a small portion. um, We don't want any of that to get back into the system. So again, can't be involved in any of those in that application. Uh, Number four says the conduit system segment contains only uh, it has to contain only threaded metal conduit, unions, couplings, uh, conduit bodies, and fittings in the unclassified location, okay? So you got to meet all those, and again, again, it's got to be all threaded components in there. So if that's not the case, then again, you're going to still require your seals. Uh, the last one is the conduit system segments is sealed at the entry to each enclosure or fitting located... In the Division 2 location that contains terminal splices, and taps. So if you want to do with not having the seals as it leaves the boundary uh, of a Class 1 Division 2, then okay if you're meeting all these rules. But then the last one says, well, the each enclosure or fitting located in the Class 2, I mean the Class 1 Division 2 location has... Um, is, so as long as you're sealed in every fitting or every enclosure uh, located in the class two location uh, that that actually also contains terminal splices, tests, whatnot, then you wouldn't need the boundary seal. But you have to meet all of these. And of course, if I'm not gonna seal every enclosure that's not required to be, then I'm just gonna have to have my seals, okay? So there is some allowances for segments of above ground. You have to meet every single one of these in order to be able to do away with that boundary seal. Okay, And that's just a 3,000-foot a, 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 a view of, of the exceptions, if you will. All right. And if I confuse you with all that, no problem. Just go back and read it. It's pretty self-explanatory. I know it's sometimes hard in a podcast to get all that. So, And I'm just now having my first cup of coffee. So, All right. So the next one that we're dealing with is Class 1, Division 1 and 2. We're in C now, 501.15C, that deals with the seals. Now, this is where the seals are required, okay? And we saw that in Division One, explosion-proof, we've got to have these seals. We saw that in a Class One, Division Two, when we have to have the seals, if it's dealing with an explosion-proof enclosure and what we're dealing with. Now we're saying, okay, now that we know those seals are required and where they're required, we're going to tell you the type of makeup of these seals and what they can be. One important thing is the exception right off the bat that says, okay, we're talking about all these seals that we just finished describing where we have seals and where we don't have seals. uh, And we went into when we can exclude seals or exception to seals. It makes a note here under 501.15c that says, okay, wait a minute, exception. Seals that are not required to be explosion proof by 501.15b2 or 504.70 Shall not be required to comply with 501.15c. Basically, what that's saying is all of the seals that are required for to be uh, transitions for class one to class uh, from class one division one to division two uh, in explos- seals that explosion proof uh, enclosures the seals that are required within eighteen inches all of that have to meet C here. Any of the seals and basically paraphrasing it that are not required to be of this, to meet this rule, are the ones that aren't dealing with explosion-proof type of enclosures and whatnot that fall under Class 1 Division 2, are not going to fall under this, okay? And how do we know that? Because it, the exception specifically points to 50115 b 2 and B2 is conduit seals for Class 1 Division 2, okay? Uh, and it talks about 2 for boundary, and it, it lets you know as you go down this boundary, it says that these seals do not have to be explosion-proof, Okay, and so when we talk about the compounds here in in the listings here under C, you're going to see that we're going to talk. We talk about fittings. We talk about the compounds in those fittings. uh, We talk about the thickness of this compound and and all those type of things that are involved in here. And I'm going to spend very little time on this, uh, but I will cover the the high points of each one of them. Of course, I want to also remind you that when we talked about this, we also said 504.70. Uh, 504 is dealing with intrinsically safe, means that in a nutshell, if you go to the new definitions that are in Article 100 under Part 3, which is dedicated now to hazardous location applications, you'll see that it's important to understand what intrinsically safe apparatus is, intrinsically safe circuits, uh, intrinsically safe system. A system is a combination of the different things, the apparatuses, the interconnecting cables, and associated apparatus. That make up an intrinsically safe system, but in a nutshell, we're talking about the inability to produce an arc or spark that can get to a to the point where you have an ignitable mixture. It can it's just not enough of an ignition source, enough energy to cause an issue. Okay, so that's intrinsically safe, and it's in there's systems and components as apparatuses that all work together uh, to create. An intrinsically safe system but if you look under 504 you're going to see that 504 is what deals with intrinsically safe and of course you have sealing requirements in 504.70 okay that you have to read and whatnot as well okay so uh, and there's an exception for example 504.70 i just read it to you so that we understand what we're talking about here in, in intrinsically safe systems it says conduits and cables that are required to be sealed By 501.15, 502.15, 505.15, and 506.15 shall be sealed to minimize the passage of gases, vapors, or dust. Such seals shall not be required to be explosion-proof or flame-proof, but shall be identified for the purpose of minimizing gases, uh, excuse me, the passage of gases, vapors, or dust under normally operating conditions and shall be accessible. Now, there's an exception. The exception says seals shall not be required for enclosures that contain only intrinsically safe apparatus, except as required in 501.17. Okay, and of course, 501.17. If you read it, and we haven't we haven't really gotten to that. But if you read 501.17, then what you'll see is that's process sealing. Okay. So that happens to do with processing if we have things like pumps, submergible pumps, flow pressure that actually could have different pressures and it prevents the migration of process fluids and things like that. Okay? So that's what we're talking about with that. So even if you have an intrinsically safe application, uh, but you have a seal that's required because of process sealing, you still could have a movement of, of material okay? due to that process, the migration or process of migration of fluids then it still could be present in an intrinsically safe system. So you have to be aware of that as well. So seal still might be required. Okay, so that's the kind of things that we we just kind of moving through. But again, read those definitions back in 100. Again, part three has changed. Uh, it's new, and it does have all of the definitions for hazardous locations in case you, you didn't know that by now. You should know that by now. But if you didn't, there you go. All right, let's get back where we're at. I forgot where exactly I was at. Oh, back at the C. So we're talking about, that was the exception, right? Uh, They're not required to be explosion-proof in 501.15b2. And again, intrinsically safe, 504.70, that type of thing. They're not required to be explosion-proof, so they don't necessarily have to meet all the requirements here of C1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or whatnot. Okay, the first thing is the fittings. It says fittings, uh, it's fittings, enclosures that contain connections or equipment shall be provided with an integral sealing means or sealing fittings listed for the location shall be used. Okay, so we have a class one division one. We have a fitting. This, if it's required for the fitting, obviously to be explosion proof, then it's going to be listed for that. It'll be a class one division one fitting for that application, all right? It says ceiling fittings shall be listed for use with one or more specific compounds and shall be accessible. So these fittings generally, uh, they look like a coupling, but they have the ability to to open it up. It has an access port to it, and you dam up the areas. If it's vertical, uh, then you dam up the bottom and you fill it with a compound. Some manufacturers, the trade name is Chico, it's material, and this tells you the thickness of the compound, and in the testing of the compound but generally the manufacturers that produce fittings will also produce this you pack it so it doesn't run down into the raceway you, you straighten out the conductors so that this material will equally distribute around it and create that seal if you will and then you fill it up with this compound and you put the seal cap on it and it is accessible because it has a cap on it and you need these locations to be accessible okay all right so that tells you that the fitting and it has to be accessible for the fitting and there's specific compounds that, listen, you just can't fill the thing with duct seal, for example. That's not evaluated for that. That's not going to keep gases from passing, okay, by the way. So you have to use that company. Now, next it goes into two, which is compound. What's compound got to meet? Well, the compound shall provide a seal to minimize the passage of gas or vapors through the sealing fitting and shall not be affected by the surrounding atmosphere or liquids. Okay, so the liquids that could get in it or or the atmosphere couldn't cause it to shrink up or whatnot or that type of thing. And it also states that the melting point of the compound should not be less than 90 degree, 93 degrees C. Basically, is 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, so it has to be tested for that, the melting point. Okay, so... That is all part of it, and the manufacturers that test their material. And again, one manufacturer's name is they call it Chico. It's a trade name for manufacturer. Other people manu- manufacture, not just the one company that makes the Chico, for will. Um, so, um, so that compound has to pass all these tests. Okay. Now, what about the thickness of the compound? Well, it says the thickness of the sealing compound installed in completed seals, other than. Other than listed cable sealing fittings, okay, which they might be a sealing fitting that doesn't utilize a compound, it might be the way it's designed, it says, shall not be less than the measured designator of the sealed fitting expressed in the units of measurement employed. Uh, however, in no case shall the thickness of the compound be less than 5 8 of an inch. Okay, so I might have a sealing fitting that doesn't necessarily use a compound, but it has a thickness of material that equates to the ceiling fitting and it's evaluated. And again, the key is to have its markings and that it's approved and listed for a certain application if that's applicable. But if it's a compound, the compound itself can't be less than 5 8 of an inch itself. Okay? Splices and taps. Um, it says, now, splices and taps. The splices and taps shall not be made in fittings intended only for sealing with the compound. So I've got the compound, the seal, I'm putting the wires to it, they have to run completely through it. They can't use it as a splice box, okay? Now, nor shall other fittings be used, uh, nor shall other fittings in which splices or taps are made be filled with compound, okay? So, so I mean, I could have a tap box that's designed explosion proof, it's designed for this application, between two enclosures, let's say, that are explosion-proof. And it allows access to it. uh, But splices are made in there, and it might be designed for that, but you're not to fill that with the compound, okay? You have to get to these splices. You have to get to these terminations. uh, But in a seal fitting that's designed to be sealed, then you put the compound in that you can't have splices or taps in that. But they do make enclosures uh, that are designed uh, for splices and taps, and you don't fill those with the compound. But you have to be very careful about entry into these. They usually are threaded and, and are gasketed and are designed a certain way. Uh, and you're going to make your spices and taps in there, tap but you're not going to fill them with this compound, okay, that we're talking about previously in C2, all right? Assemblies. Okay, we're, again, we're talking about seals installed. We're talking class 1, division 1 and 2. It says an entire assembly shall be identified for the location where the equipment that may produce a spark, arcs, or high temperatures is located in a compartment that is separated from the compartment containing splices or taps, and an integrated seal to provide where conductors pass from one compartment to the other. So I could have an assembly, and it could have an area where they're gonna have arcing and sparking or whatever take place, and it's a separate compartment, okay? and it has to be separate to wherever any splices or taps that might be made, and there's internal seals that are going to separate that as the passage of conductors from the compartment that allows for the splices or taps to move into the other apartment, compartment of the assembly, and then it's got to be sealed from point A to point B, if you will. Now, it goes on to say, now, in the Division One location, seals shall be provided in conduit connected to the compartment containing splices and taps, we're required by 501.15A12. So maybe I've got an apparatus, and my raceway is coming into a specific compartment that is going to have splices and taps, but yet it doesn't. And then from that compartment, it transitions into the apparatus, and that has a seal built in to get from point A where the splice is into the apparatus. Well, that's in taking place. But what this is saying is. Yeah, but I'm coming into the assembly from a, in a division one location and I'm coming into the compartment where it's going to contain the splices and taps. And if that's the case, I got to meet all the requirements of 501.15 A12. Okay, so the A12 is where you're looking and it talks about, well, that's the rule where it says where the entry is trade size two and larger and it contains terminal splices and taps. Guess what? I'm gonna have a seal anyway, okay? So that's where you kick into to the two, trade size two and larger for splices, taps, or whatnot, okay? So that's why it says here, when you're going into that location, then you have to provide a seal to the compartment containing splicing and types were required by 50115A12, and that's the two, trade size two and larger. So just remember, generally, trade size two and larger in a Division One location, you're gonna have seals regardless, okay? Even if the equipment has a built-in seal, you're still going to have a seal on it, okay? And it trades size two and larger, all right? All right, and then the six is uh, conductors or optical fiber fill. I'm not going to get into that because I don't deal too much into that, okay? All right, so for this episode, we are going to stop before we get into cable seals, which is a totally entirely different beast, um, which is maybe will be a, a shorter pod, a podcast, but we're also, when we get into those, we're talking about cable seals when it comes into Class 1 Division 1 and Class 1 Division 2 when we're talking cables. That's different than conduits, okay, and different in, in raceways. We're going to talk about cable seals, and that's a separately different beast that we want to talk about, all right? So until next time, folks, I want to just tell you thanks for listening. Hopefully I didn't confuse you, and if I did, you know what you can do. You can email me at info, that's INFO at electricalcodeacademy.com, and I'm more than happy to answer your questions. Also, you can go to info at com uh, if you would like. But quicker, it gets to me quicker if you go to the info at electricalcodeacademy.com because that comes straight to me instead of being a forwarded email uh, to my proxy master the domain. Uh, the Electrical Code Academy is my primary domain. Uh, so I get those emails right away. Um, hopefully you enjoyed our videos over on uh, youtube.com forward slash Master of the NEC. Hopefully you like these podcasts. I know this is another long one. Again, I'm sorry. It's just a lot of information to cover and I want to make sure that we cover it. So hopefully you don't give me the thumbs down. You appreciate this. But if you do, give me a thumbs down. It's like I care because I don't share them with anybody anyway. So only you know and I know and I don't really care whether you don't like it or not. <laughs> I'm not doing this because you don't like it. I'm doing it because I help people, and that's all I care about. And whether you get something out of it, great. If you don't, I just took an hour and 38 minutes of your life for you to put a thumbs down. I'm the one that won here. (laughs) So anyway, I hope you get something out of it. I'm here to help you. So thanks again. Until next time, stay safe. God bless. Every day, the future's getting closer. Just looking bright Every day is another beginning